Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, Auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1953. Jack Palance is the wily and scary Curly, leading three men on an adventure of a lifetime. The movie Paul, City. Paul, yeah. Paul, Paul, yeah. Paul, no, we're not yeah. talking about that one. We're talking about the prequel. Oh, you're right. You're right. Shane is the prequel to City Slickers. Today's movie, Shane. Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I am Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list, 2007 edition, to see if they really are as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films we watch today? Um, on this episode, we'll be talking about Shane. But before we get into that, we want to go back in time and talk a little bit about your reaction to Blade Runner. But even before we get into that, um, Amy. We decided that we would go into our archives and free up two episodes from the past. Um, people have asked about this, and we also think that it's um, timely to kind of bring them back out. And one of them is Do the Right Thing, where Spike Lee came on the show and talked a little bit about police violence. Uh, we talked about Eric Garner. And I think right now it's a great episode to listen to. Um, I know that people have talked about this movie in the context of things and how just relevant it is. So uh, we are pulling back Do the Right Thing into the mix. And we're also going to be pulling out Sidney Poitier's In the Heat of the Night, a film that is about a brilliant cop who gets tangled up in a murder case in the South and is very much racially profiled by the local police and fights back through his words, through his actions, through his deeds, through his utter and complete certainty that he is on the right side of justice. It's an amazing performance from Sidney Poitier, and you can really see how he became a movie star. And we have a great guest in that episode as well, which is uh, D. Ray McKesson, who is one of the founders of Campaign Zero, just talking about the idea of systematic racism uh, in our society. So I thought those, you know, two episodes would be fun to revisit uh, if you want to uh, hear some really amazing guests speak to that. Um, now, on to Blade Runner, which I think to many people was a little depressing because we are living in this time 
where I think we can see a world like Blade Runner actually happening. But even though that is the case, uh, people voted on our Facebook group two to one to keep this film on the list, Amy. So this is a keeper. Not for you. (laughs) Yeah, but it's interesting that Blade Runner became to me even more relevant over the weekend. You know, a, a film that questions... How much do we allow empathy in the people who are supposed to be uh, keeping us safe and happy? How much do we appreciate empathy in anybody? And do we want to tamp down people who just want to fight to live and be free? Um, So maybe I like Blade Runner even more than I did (laughs) last week. But yeah, uh, two thirds of our listeners did say absolutely want to keep Blade Runner on the AFI list. And among the hot takes, one hot take that really stood out to me was one from Cinephiliac, who is at Slacker Inc., um, Cinefilex said, I love Blade Runner, but my hot take is that I like the voiceover. It has a pitch perfect noir world weariness, if you ask me. And I cannot believe that you, speaking to you, Paul, prefer mm. that goofy narration that Harrison Ford did for The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, uh, heresy, I say. <laughs> heresy. I was not saying I prefer that level of narration. I just thought, you know, Harrison Ford's a person who can definitely turn it on when given the moment. And I thought that that uh, voiceover was laconic. I don't think that the movie doesn't work without voiceover. I agree with you there. I just felt like Harrison Ford was just, just, uh, I mean, it was, it was like a gunpoint. I mean, he's admitted so much there. Um, but I do agree that this movie might've been helped with a little bit of voiceover. I, I just don't, I still don't understand why it wasn't there. Um, especially cause it's such a neo-noir. Um, you know, other people kind of brought up, maybe this isn't the best Ridley Scott to have on the list. I know Amy, you talked about Thelma Louise and be on the list. Um, Chris Hampson said, you know, maybe it's alien, you know, but also concedes that Blade Runner is a movie that almost gets better because of Blade Runner 2049, which goes back to my theory of combining some films. Why can't we put films together? You know, um, why can't one of the entries be, you know, the Star Wars trilogy? You know, why do we have to separate one from the batch when they kind of work so well together? Because we like to make hard choices, Paul. I know, I <laughs> know, I know. Are. You're that's right. That's who we are. But yeah, no, I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, when it comes to somebody like Ridley Scott's career, I think there is a huge argument made for me putting for putting Alien on this list um, over or in addition to Blade Runner. Uh, just as though, you know, say with William Friedkin, for example, I, I can't believe that we don't have his most iconic film on the list being The Exorcist when we instead we have the William Friedkin uh, film, The French Connection, the like very brutal cops, heavy, let's smash them up kind of film list, which I feel like, you know what? We talked about this during the French Connection episode. Um, what are these stories we tell ourselves about police officers? What kind of characters are we celebrating? Even though The French Connection is trying very much to undermine the idea that a tough cop is right, even though even Gene Hackman himself hated playing that character. That film's on the list, and I think over time we forget that these characters are supposed to be called into question. And I now firmly, more firmly than ever, believe we need to take that movie off and put The Exorcist on. Oh, my gosh. You have no argument here. Um, you know, Amy, I got into it a little bit this weekend on Twitter with uh, Nicole Rogers, uh, who brought up a really interesting point. And uh, I'll have you read her point of view, and then I can respond to it a little bit. Yeah, you know, Nicole was talking about um, when you read a quote from Philip K. Deck, who was talking about how he got the inspiration for the Blade Runners. And he said that a lot of what inspired him was reading stories coming from the Nazis and thinking that the Nazis, to do what they did, did not feel human to him, that he was that their humanity was not on display. And Nicole wanted to say, you know, we uh, she wants to be careful when we say things like these people aren't human, 
because there is a real tendency to separate ourselves as as humans from the people who do bad things to say like, oh, yeah, over here on the humanity side of the equation, we got MLK, we got Gandhi, we got Fred Rogers. Oh, but like Hitler, Ted Bundy, those people are not human. They're inhuman. They're monsters. And Nicole's point, which I do agree with, is that when we exclude them from us, you know, we almost say we could never do that. You know, we take away our own culpability. Humans are capable of doing really bad things. And I think when we otherize it, to Nicole's point of view, we don't watch ourselves for our own bad behavior, which I think is, I think she's correct on that. She says, we are a complex species. Yeah. And I don't disagree with what Nicole was saying. I think as I debated with her on Twitter a bit was, I was just kind of bringing up the point that I loved that this was the inspiration for Blade Runner. And I read the quote more to the point of what humans are capable of, not what some humans are capable of, like in a certain position, in a way with education or through society or, you know, whatever it can take, you know, if that's being in war, if that's being, you know, hungry, scared, alone, you may act in a way that you never thought. And that idea was really interesting to me because I felt like he was reading this story or these diary entries of these people that if you took them out of the war would not react this way, but because they were so um, brainwashed or in this world where they felt like it was, they had devalued the lives of these children, they were able to kind of create a whole different mindset. I just was kind of fascinated by that. So I think we are saying the same thing. I, I, I think humanity is, uh, I think that's why we're fascinated by these characters. Like, oh my God, could I, could I ever do that? It, Cause it is in us all. So Nicole, we are not fighting. We are agreeing. Even though I just said, I love it. I didn't mean I love that they are others. I love that there was this more of an inspiration point. Yeah, but this is such a good movie to have that conversation. You know, it's so clear, you know, in our conversation and when people watch the film that the Blade Runners like Harrison Ford's Deckard are less human in the way they behave than the robots themselves. I shouldn't even be using the robots than than the actual replicants themselves. Leading to the question, you know, is Deckard a replicant? Like, is somebody who acts that inhuman, can they really even be human? I was saying he's definitely not a replicant because he does not have superhuman strength, for one thing. Like, he gets his ass kicked left and right all over this movie. So John DeFore's point was, you know what? Maybe it's on purpose that he doesn't have superpowers because maybe the police force, since they don't want him to know that he's a replicant, didn't give him the superpowers so that he wouldn't have any clue that he is just a disposable kind of easily replaceable Blade Runner. To which I would say, fair point, but then why do we even have replicants doing this job if 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 they're not even (laughs) better at it? I don't know. You need need somebody to do the menial tasks, don't you, Amy? Just a couple of menial tasks. I mean... Maybe it's a price issue. You know, not every car needs to be a Porsche. You need to get a Mazda every now and then to drive around town. Um, yes. So, I mean, I will say that I, I got a Roomba for my birthday. Uh-huh. And and because of this Blade Runner episode, I'm now trying to be a lot nicer to my Roomba. Like I said, I'm free to do work around this house. But I want to know that I'm just not having a robot slave. <laughs> well, you know, if you want to go back uh, one step further, because uh, we were talking and Bridge on the River Kwai about the similarities between Planet of the Apes and that film. And there's a reason for the similarity pointed out to us by Dana Gould, who you might know as a great uh, comedy writer, uh, performer, actor. He's just awesome. Uh, Dana, a giant Planet of the Apes fan, points out that the script for Bridge on the River Kwai and Rod Serling's Planet of the Apes script were both written by the same person. 
I love that. I I had no idea when we started the show that the apes and that the bridge, that apes bridge was like such a, a powerful connector of two giant films. But but that also makes me wonder, you know what? Like, would you rather have apes or Kwai on this list? Oh, apes, 100%. I think I may even have said that in the episode. I, I feel like apes is a, a bigger film. And I, I also think, though, it speaks to this list in the sense of the highfalutinness of it. I know that's not really a word, but this idea that like it's perceived. I think Planet Apes is perceived a little bit maybe more trashy. It's not, though. When, it's, when these movies are so giant in our culture, we have to acknowledge them. That's why I still bang the drum on uh, you know these big popcorn films. I, I don't think we have enough of them on the list. You know, and Amy, speaking about big popcorn films, we all know how important it is to have a great name for your lead character. And last week, we asked you one of our most important questions. What would be a better name than Shane for Shane? Because we didn't think that Shane was actually a great cowboy name. I mean, a good name, a good name. If your name's Shane, we have no shame for you. We think that's a great name, but is it a tough cowboy name? I mean, not many names are tough cowboy names. So we asked you to come up with a better name. Take a listen to what you came up with. Okay, so Shane is a gunslinger who doesn't want to be a gunslinger anymore, hence one name, Shane, so no one can find him. But I think the name Scotch Drewblood evokes manliness in the Scotch and the fact that he used to be a gunslinger because he used to draw blood. Jim Bloodspur. I think a better name for Shane would be Hondo River Run. The name's Gumption. Dirk. My cowboy name is Justice Haggard. Clint Eastwood had one of the better cowboy names as Rowdy. Great cowboy name. Also my favorite American race car driver, Dick Trickle. My pick would be Dugan, red-headed Johnny. Yeah, it's a lot of J's and a lot of D's. We must just think J's and D's are the hardest the hardest consonants. DJ, J, JD. <laughs> Gumption, Dirk Gumption. I still can't get that out of my head. <laughs> I I do appreciate though, um, redheaded Johnny. You know, I do feel like redheaded men get kicked around a lot in cinema. So thank you for sticking up for the occasional redhead, who I think is unfair when they get treated as the nerd or the loser or who wants to go on a date with that guy. Well, you know what? Um, fair, fair point. I wish, however, we were going to be talking about Scotch Drew Blood today, but our feature film today is Shane. Amy, are you ready to unspool it, partner? As I'll ever be. <laughs> the year is 1953. Queen Elizabeth II is crowned the monarch of England. U.S. labor unions' wage control and lowering unemployment continues to grow and increasing the standard of living. Dwight D. Eisenhower is inaugurated as the president, and the United States and the Korean War comes to an end. The Soviet Union tests its own H-bomb, increasing the tension between the U.S. and the USSR. Also, Nikita Khrushchev takes over after Stalin dies. Jonas Salk develops the first polio vaccine, and the double helix in strands of DNA is first observed. The popular films of the era are Peter Pan, From Here to Eternity, Roman Holiday, and today's film Shane. It ranks number 45 on the AFI Top 100 list. It's up 24 points from its spot at 69 in the previous list. Let's take a listen to a clip. Bang! Bang! You get many. Missed one. Well, you didn't stand for that. Pa, you guess Shane will teach me to shoot? I'll teach myself once I get the time, Joey. Move it. 
you shoot as good as Shane, Pa? How do I know? I've never seen him shoot. But I doubt it. He didn't wear his gun today. Why is that, Pa? Well, he's trading at the store, not holding it up. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Shane. This is a movie directed by our buddy George Stevens, who directed Swing Time, the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers musical that goes all the way back to the very beginning of us doing this show. Um, Here he is with his Western story about a man named Shane, played by Alan Ladd, one of the heartthrobs of the screen era at this moment. A man who rides in a town, the strong, silent, mysterious type, and gets involved in what's kind of a retelling of the Johnson County War of Wyoming, in which cattlemen tried to fight homesteaders, chase them off their land, a battle that was so bad that there were lynchings, assassinations, and President Harrison eventually had to call in the U.S. Cavalry. This is that story told through the eyes of the young kid, Joey, who worships Shane and sees Shane as this figure of what he thinks American manhood should be, and which I would say the movie, to its credit, questions whether or not the kid is right the whole running time. You know... People often talk about sci-fi as being a great way to take a complex issue and examine it in a way that, I guess, doesn't trigger people, right? And I also think that Westerns serve this same function in the sense that you can look at humanity not just as black and white, that there are these shades of gray. And Shane is, you know, something that we've really adopted in the last, you know, five, 10 years, like this anti-hero. You know, we, he is a bad guy. Yes, he's trying to do good, but I mean, it really does talk about like, I guess, machismo. You know, it it takes this idea of a cowboy and what we want. We want the gunfights. We want the fistfights, but we also show how it's incredibly conflicting to be this and that it's not always what it's cracked up to be to a certain extent. Yeah, no, I agree that this is a movie that I think puts forth this cowboy figure in the form of Shane. You know, he doesn't need to say much. He's quiet and he's tough. And then every step of the way shows him both getting built up by the kid until a larger-than-life thing. Like, Shane can do anything, can't he? Shane can beat anybody. Shane doesn't need this. Shane can take it all. And showing that Shane himself is not comfortable with the, with these accolades being heaped on him and that a lot of this tough talk is... Silly. You know, I think it it questions tough talk from the very beginning, from the very beginning in which Shane shows up at this homesteader's ranch and the ranchman himself, you know, a man named Joe, played by Van Heflin, gives this big brag like to run him off the land. You're going to have to kill him first, which gets called out even in that scene by his wife. I know one thing. The only way they're going to get me out of here is in a pine box. What do you mean, Pa? Well, I mean, son, they'll have to shoot me and carry me out. Joe, I wish you wouldn't talk like that. Well, that's the truth. You love this place. We've got our roots down. I know, but I wish you wouldn't talk that way. First real home we've ever had. What did you mean when you said about that? Joey, be quiet. The men want to talk. The only thing is there's just more work here than I can do. That woman calling him out, by the way, we love her and we've seen her before. That's Jean Arthur from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. She's so amazing in that movie. And if you are a Criterion subscriber, they did a whole like Gene Arthur section last month, which was just awesome. And I got to catch up on some more of her films. Gene, always happy to see you. You know what I love about this, too, is looking at the idea of how violence is glorified and how it affects children. Because that is a big, complex idea that I was surprised in this rewatch to see so clearly. And I don't know if it's the way that 
I'm looking at the world right now, but I also just feel like oh, this movie is really making some poignant statements, um, but also delivering a traditional classic cowboy story. No, I could not agree more. You know, I, I think if you lay out the plot of Shane, this is one of the simplest plots we've had on this movie, right? Town in trouble, stranger rides in, straighten shit out, leaves. I think you can sum up Shane like that in the facts. Yeah. But really what's going under the surface the whole way is it's men talking about violence, saying that they're willing to fight and die for this stuff, and people saying, that's not worth it. I don't think that's worth it, you know? That this is this is a movie that deliberately added the weight of death and grief to this film as a way of trying to question basically the myth of what American manhood is. You know, the men in this movie are trying to live up to an ideal. Like, you'll have to kill me to get me off my land. The women in the movie are like, what? You know, to the point right. that, like, the original book did not have one of the most moving scenes in this film. You know, the funeral of one of the men. Our dear own Alicia Cook, who we saw in the Maltese Falcon getting pushed around a lot as the, as the dumb torpy bully, Again, here trying to play like a dumb, overviolent twerp who gets killed. And in the original novel, that's there. But what's not in the novel is the funeral. And it, the screenwriter here, A.B. Guthrie Jr., made a big point of adding the funeral. He said, I want to see a Western that recognizes grief and death. We don't do that. Yeah, watching this film, I couldn't help but see the similarities between Unforgiven. I mean, this to me feels like Clint Eastwood loved this film. And when he read David Peoples' script, he was like, yes, I get to make my own version of Shane. Um, and I'm sure, and I wish we could have talked to David about this, like, did Shane influence Unforgiven? I mean, it it is a very similar story. Um, but I also think it's a story that's worth being retold. I think what Shane does a little bit more effectively than Unforgiven, and again, Unforgiven is a movie I really do enjoy, is putting the child in it. Because by putting the child in the center of the film, it allows you to question morality. And it also allows you to see how we are formed. I mean, this kid wants to see Shane fight. He wants to see Shane murder. And what effect does that have? What does that kid become? You know, uh, if you're surrounded by these, you know, these ideals or what you think is being cool or tough. And, and I think that that separates this film from Unforgiven uh, and doesn't just do the traditional story because this, this story has been used a bunch in Heaven's Gate and the Virginian. Like we've used this kind of, the story of like the, the Johnson County War in a lot of cowboy films. But this one I think does something wholly unique. It tells a story about the effects of violence. Yeah, no, exactly. And I bet there's Clint Eastwood fans out there who are like, oh, wait, Clint Eastwood actually did try to pretty much remake this film even before Unforgiven with the movie Pale Rider, which people did not oh, right. love. But that was, again, Clint Eastwood showing, I love this story. I want to be this story. I want to keep bringing this story forth and forth and forth. But yeah, I was startled in this rewatch to see how clearly the film shows that the young kid here, Joey, is obsessed with guns and that his obsession with guns is irritating that he starts yeah. off the movie literally with the first shots is you know he's staring at a deer through his rifle planning on trying to kill this thing until shane shows up and then from then on he's just running around he's asking to be taught how to shoot he's using sticks as guns he's begging for his own he's mad that he has a gun that doesn't have any bullets in it and it goes so far that like 
in one of the more dramatic moments of this movie, when when Shane is realizing that the dad is going to walk into danger just to prove his own manhood, the kid is in the back raising the stakes by saying bang, bang, by making play gun noises, which is setting everybody's teeth on edge. Here, I mean, even just listen, like by the time you hear the bang, bang in this clip, he's been doing bang, bang for pretty much a full minute in the background. They've been weaving it in and out of the sound mix. Things that will be. Bang! I love that scene. It it really serves to keep the audience on edge because by the time it gets into that main living room or dining room, you are like, oh, shut up, shut up. But it is, it's it's like the firecracker scene in Boogie Nights. It's I was this, just thinking of the firecracker scene in Boogie Nights. It, it like you know, and it's it's so rare that a movie can kind of put you in that level of turn it off, shut it down. Like 2001 has that too, with that loud kind of sonic noise of the monolith. It's very rarely do movies like sonically disrupt you. Um, or at least I can, I can't think of many. Yes. You have loud explosions and things like that, but this is disrupting you. This is to make you feel the irritation of it. Yeah. And how fascinating that this is a movie basically saying this image of the West is like good guys and guns comes from a child, a really immature child who's play acting. He's play mm. acting and he doesn't get it. And the grownups are like, no, you do not understand that this is real. You know, you need to grow up. And that's throughout this entire film. And Steven said really deliberately in an interview about this film, he said, a gunshot for our purposes is a holocaust. That's the word he picked. So that mm. when anybody does get shot by a gun here, he made a point of trying to make it look as bad as possible by like yanking on the back of their restraint, yanking on their, yanking on the actor's body so that they looked really violently thrown back. I was actually going to bring up another quote from George, but I want to talk about this because he was the first person to use wires to show that. And, and to a certain point, it, comically, because when Shane punches one of our first bad guys, he basically punches him through a room. Um, but I think it does give you the idea of how strong Shane is or, you know, it it makes it register that they don't just kind of wipe it off their face. Like people get bloodied and bruised and battered. And to that point, the quote that I was going to talk about that George Stevens said was he considered this his war movie. And the, and the two quotes kind of go in tandem here because I feel like it's treated like these films that we've watched, these war films, where people are wrestling with what is war? What are we doing here? And very much in a war picture, it's an ordinary person put into an extreme situation. And here, Shane is that as well. He's not in the military, but he is an ordinary person who is saying, I'm trying to give up my violent tendencies or my violent past, but yet he's forced to use them. And I love I loved kind of looking at a war movie through this lens because it is the same struggle, even though he's not an innocent coming into it, but he's wrestling with the violence that he has to do to keep order or I should say peace because I don't think he's he's not acting like a sheriff. He's a sticking up for himself and protecting these families, you know, and, and thinking about that and going, wow, this movie is working on so many levels. Do you think? that George Stevens, when he decided to direct this movie, knew 
that he wanted to make something bigger than a traditional Western, and he kind of snuck it in. You know, this movie was supposed to shoot over 20 days with a small budget, and it actually shot over 75 days, and the budget, like, tripled. Um, And I wonder, you know, the time that he took to make this movie, he was really trying to not make a traditional Western, you know, but I think he may have sold it that way to to just be able to make it. Do you, do you feel like there's any truth to that? Or maybe, or I don't know, maybe I'm reading th- into it too much. No, I think it would make a lot of sense. I mean, for a couple of reasons, like one, the year before this, High Noon comes out. So there's mm. uh, there's a, this, it's right in the mindset of filmmakers that you can use the Western to try to make a point about what you want to say about America. But even before that, the year before High Noon came out, Stevens made a film that I really like called A Place in the Sun, which right. you know is based on the story in you know, American Tragedy, which is about, the flaws in this country that are built into how we see romance and masculinity and what it's like to try to make yourself matter as a big man. It's an incredibly critical film about American society. And I think that's who George Stevens is at the core. I think he wanted to make films that got at something about psyche, because I think this entire film is about why, why do we associate heroism with a gun? You know, why does that little kid say like, how come Shane's going to town without his gun? And then dad's like, he's just going to town to buy things. He doesn't need a gun. Right. You know, I I definitely related to that young boy because as a kid, I was fascinated with guns. I remember like I used to have like a drawer full of like toy guns and hide them under my clothes because I loved things like James Bond and, you know, Axel Foley. All my heroes had guns. And, you know, oftentimes in those films, in these big action films, guns have no consequence. They're a prop. You know, there's no weight to it. Um, And I think you know, if you grew up with cowboy films, the guns have no weight. They don't have any weight. So he really did a great job of, and we talked about the the funeral scene, like of saying, no, 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 this has a consequence. This has an effect. Even seeing the blood on people's faces and them being injured um, and how quick the violence is at the end. It's not glorified. It's not like, oh, I want to live in this. Like the wild bunch is glorified violence. It's, it's, you know, it's, I think Quentin Tarantino does this. It's almost an explosion of violence just to kind of say something else about violence. But here it's so brutal and so quick. It could be over like that. And I love that he was there. And, and, and that's why I think he took so long to make this movie, like 119 takes to do that scene where uh, Shane practices shooting in front of, you know, the kid. Like, you know, because he doesn't want it to be like, I don't think he just wanted it to be cool. It was kind of deconstructing the traditional scene of like the amazing gunslinger who can, you know, nail everything with, you know, one shot. Yeah. And I think part of also why that scene took so many takes is that Lad himself really hated guns and hated holding and firing them. And I think also, yeah, he kept shutting his eyes during that scene because he hated doing it so much. But I think- In a way, that adds to this. I mean, Hollywood is the place that tells us myths about America. And here you're casting an actor who even hates holding guns as this great gunslinger. You're casting Jack Palance, who hates riding horses, as a guy who gets on and off horses. You're, you're almost aware of the fraudulence when you, mm. and aware of the fact that actors are telling a story that they don't even like, that they don't even live in. They're, they can't ride horses. They can't shoot guns. We're hiring them to tell us what it was like, quote unquote. And it, it was not right. like that. And it, well, this goes back to our war movie stories. Like, 
you know, we have these directors who weren't in Vietnam making these movies about Vietnam going, this is what the war experience is. It's play acting. I mean, all of it is play acting. You know, I'm obsessed with Fast and Furious. Like, you know, they have these contracts where they can never lose a fight. They can't show any, ultimately, any humanity, right? They have to keep on adding people to the Fast and Furious universe because uh, as they as they stay in it, they can't lose fights and they can't look bad, right? Like, so it is a funny thing that, exists. Like we want our actors to be who they are on screen. I mean, our biggest stars seem invincible. Tom Cruise does his own stunts. You know, Denzel Washington, you know, will never really in an action movie lose the upper hand. You know, I, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we go see these people too. You know, we want to live vicariously through them, even though they're not that, but we want to believe that they are. Exactly. And I think we even talked about this when we talked about the wild bunch, how, I am more deeply offended by the PG-13 movies, by the Marvel movies, where there's just tons of bullets firing everywhere and nothing matters. I think you calling it weightless is exactly mm. the right word for it. Um, and I'd rather see, you know, the violence of Sam Peckinpah making me recoil and making me disgusted by it. And Sam Peckinpah actually, like, traced a lot of his his use of guns even though he used them dramatically differently than 1953 you couldn't show a ton of gun a ton of blood he said when jack palance shot elisha cook and shane things started to change that that was the moment for him that was kind of an awakening of what gun, how guns should be used because that death in particular is pitiful he shoots elisha cook yeah. who's coming out there like i'm a tough guy and he collapses in the mud and there's no dignity to it no it's so upsetting and you know talking about you know he couldn't use a lot of guns but what he was able to do was make sure the gunshots felt like they were different than what we've heard. And I was doing my research on this and realized that Warren Beatty actually stole Stevens' technique for gunshots and Bonnie and Clyde. See, like George Stevens, he fired a gun into a garbage pail. And that's what made the gunfire in this movie so much louder because he wanted to startle the audience with the firing of a gun. And then you know, we listened to that clip in the Bonnie and Clyde episode where Warren Beatty's like, I came up with this idea of shooting a, a gun in a garbage can. And I'm like, oh, you know, it was already done. And for the same for the same purpose, you know, this movie, I think, is very violent without having a lot of a high body count. And I think in a weird way, because so few people are killed, we're actually able to invest in them more. So their deaths mean uh, a lot more to me. Exactly. And, and, you know, to the point you were making about actors being uncomfortable losing fights on on screen. I mean, it's almost like the actors are the little kid here. Like the actors themselves are still acting like Joey. You know, we have that fight scene really early on in the bar. Well, I want to play a little bit of it. You know, the soda pop fight where Shane walks into a bar. He orders a soda. He's getting the soda for Joey, but the men of the bar don't know that. Here's how that plays out. Lemon, strawberry, or lilac, sodbuster? You speaking to me? I don't see nobody else standing there. Here, have some of this. Smell like a man. Don't it smell better in here, Grafton? Chris just fumigated a sodbuster. <laughs> just take it easy. I was just asking about soda pop. Pigs and taters and one thing another. A couple of things. I mean, one, Joey cannot believe that Shane would just let a shot of whiskey get poured on him like that. Like, it mm -hmm. it, it, it betrays Joey's sense of who he is. And Shane 
lets it happen. Shane is like, this is this is the choice here. This is the best choice here. And that kind of clash between like, how could my hero lose a fight? I don't want him to lose a fight. And what the hero knows is best is so interesting. And a second thing is, during this scene, I kept thinking, oh, I feel like there's a lot of back to the future in here. You know? Oh, like, interesting. It, I think all of Shane has this dynamic about like, don't call me chicken. I'm not a chicken. I don't want to look chicken. Different characters, like the idea that it takes strength to be Shane and have alcohol poured on you as opposed to trying to prove that you're not a chicken the way that the dad does, the way that Elisha Cook does. You know, it's the men who are trying to prove they're not chickens who actually end up looking weak. And I, this, I mean, and I think this idea gets underscored in the music. I mean, one of my favorite parts is when all the ranchers are having this resistance meeting. You know, they meet together and they're like, what are we going to do about, about the cattlemen trying to push us off our property? And Tori, the Elisha character, is like, I'm going to beat him up. I'm going to beat him up. And when you listen to the music, which is being played in the scene by somebody playing the harmonica, they're making fun of him. They're using music to make fun of his own bluster of who he thinks he is by playing the music of the Civil War. All get together in one bunch and we'll go into town for our supplies. Yeah, I reckon that's a good idea. There's some strength in a whole bunch. I don't need no bodyguard. I'll put on my 38 and go into town anytime I please. <laughs> that song, by the way, is um, a union song. That's the union song about Sherman marching through Georgia. Um, because there is another thing going on here that I thought was really interesting, which is our like, good guys are once again Confederates. Like, Tory is a Confederate. And our bad guys, Jack Palance, is a Yankee. He's a union member. And mm. so even in that, sh- that scene where our bad guy shoots Tory, he makes fun of the South. Our, our bad guy makes fun of Stonewall Jackson and makes fun of the Confederacy before he shoots him. A- and I thought that was really interesting. Like we, I'm, I am still really hung up on this idea of how ingrained it has been in movies that the Confederacy are the heroes. And you know, now that I'm saying this out loud, and, and I wonder, I mean, when you have a character like Tori who thinks he's tougher than he is, is George Stevens making fun of the Confederacy a little bit? Or, is, I mean, is this an elbow at the Confederacy and not an embrace of them as, the as you know, brave, heroic losers? Because it's not a brave death. Yeah, I wonder what the intent is. I think a lot of the times, too, the era in which you have to tell the story, there are always going to be good guys and bad guys. This is based on a true story. So I think there's going to be attitudes here. I don't know if this movie is laying down like, the North is bad, the South is good, as much as it's saying, you know, people are just trying to make a living and they're trying to live an honest life. And these forces come in that try to co-opt them. And I think that that's why this movie still resonates today because whether you're living in an apartment building and your landlord wants to raise your rent or your local mom and pop store is taken over by a giant target, you see this idea that, you know, it's impossible to live a life without someone trying to interfere. And when will you push back against that interference. You know, so I I feel like the movie uses that as a backdrop, but not necessarily naming it more than, you know, a universal idea that we can all kind of relate to. I mean, I agree with that. And, and And I felt like I heard such a modern echo in one of the moments where, you know, they show up at at Shane and Joe's house, they explain that Tori's dead. And they say that the problem with Tori was that he wasn't reasonable, that he didn't protest in the right way. And that we already mm. know that they're lying about how he died and that and that yes. all of the men are backing up this lie about how he died, that he came in and that he was the aggressor. 
And Ugh. and so it's like men covering up for him and then men using this language of you're not behaving that I found so chilling. Brother Roof wants to see you. He says to tell you he's a reasonable man. Your brother's responsible for the killing of my friend Tori. My brother wouldn't kill anybody. You don't want to go to jail. Tori was a hothead. He picked on a stranger. Tori didn't want to be reasonable. You want to be reasonable, don't you, Starrett? I have to say, Amy, we're recording this episode right now, you know, in the aftermath of uh, the murder of George Floyd and these amazing protests all around our country. And these parallels were just leaping out at me. And I'm always kind of amazed at movies like this that were so ahead of their time and also a little bit disheartened because these stories have been going on for so long. You know, um, this idea that a majority can, you know, squash a minority and, and, and really overrun, you know, and I think I look at this movie in in such a different way and I could see a, a very powerful retelling of this. If you change the race of this cast as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, there's a scene where I think the screenwriter does try to make a point of not both sizing it at all, but he does give the cattleman that she, that speech. You know, he gets to make a speech kind of defending his point of view, defending why he thinks America belongs to him. Look, Star, when I come to this country, you weren't much older than your boy there. We had rough times. Me and other men that are mostly dead now. I got a bad shoulder yet from a Cheyenne arrowhead. We made this country. Found it and we made it. Worked blood and empty bellies. Cattle we brought in were hazed off by Indians and rustlers. Don't bother you much anymore because we handled them. We made a safe range out of this. Some of us died doing it. We made it. And then people move in who never had a raw hide it through the old days. Fence off my range and fence me off from water. Some of them, like you, plow ditches and take out irrigation water. And so the creek runs dry sometimes. I've got to move my stock because of it. And you say we have no right to the range. The men that did the work and ran the risks have no rights. I take you for a fair man, Star. I'm not belittling what you and the others did. At the same time, you didn't find this country. There was trappers here and Indian traders long before you showed up. They tamed this country more than you did. They weren't ranchers. You talk about rights. You think you've got the right to say that nobody else has got any. Well, that ain't the way the government looks at it. And I wonder, like, I'm sure I'm not the only person who, when you heard the homesteaders' defense of why this land actually belongs to them and not the cattlemen, you know, that it's still being spoken in the language of the 1950s that we have to get past. That, like, no, 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 we're the guys who tamed this land and settled this land with zero actual recognition of the people who really were in that land and who it did mm. belong to. That it's like two different groups of American settlers fighting over who got to settle it better and not yet still at a point of recognizing that the land doesn't belong to either one.
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, the other thing that I saw in this film was a little bit of Taxi Driver. You know, in my research, I also found out that Martin Scorsese, big fan of Shane, and and kind of apes a couple of moments from Shane in Taxi Driver. And I think that's an interesting way of telling this narrative too. I think that Travis Bickle wants to be Shane, but he's not, right? To a certain degree. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I, that's what I was kind of thinking. I know that like that um, you speaking to me, you talking to me, that whole section, uh, you know, is kind of taken from this movie. Like, you know, when De Niro's in the mirror going, you talking to me. That apparently was from, you know, when when Shane's in the bar and he turns like you speaking to me very much like a cowboy, you know, very much like this idea like he is a cowboy. He's a modern cowboy. He's trying to get the girl. He's trying to save the girl at the end. Like it's it it has a lot of the elements of if you took out all the specifics of New York City, you know, of someone who may view himself in this way. I, I don't know, you know, trying to do right and and speak out against the wrong, the mayor, the governor, whoever he was against i don't know um but i just i saw something there in these characters of of that boy grown up maybe that boy grown up is like a travis bickle wanting to be the hero but you know leaning into violence maybe i'm reading way too much into it but no i, I don't i don't think you are i don't think you are at all because you're right like it's questioning who we see as heroes and then it's saying like who do we want to grow up to be i mean I, I love that moment in the film where you're watching what is an, that bonding moment between Shane and Joey, where Shane shows off that he can shoot and is giving him advice on how to wear a gun belt. It, and I think this scene is legitimately half played for like, look, they're bonding and they're getting along. And isn't that sweet? And he's teaching him how to be a man. But it doesn't just let it hang out there like that. You get to have Gene Arthur come in and say, no, this is not how I want my boy raised. Oh, you see, Joey? Now, look, remember now, when your hand comes up, Still have room to clear your holster. Shane. All over, Mrs. Stark. I was just teaching Joy how to do a little shooting. I don't want to do You ought to see Shane shoot, now. I did, Joey. He's teaching me to shoot. Yes, I know, dear. Now, you run along and get ready for the party. Oh, Mom. Go on, Joey. Guns aren't going to be my boy's life. Why do you always have to spoil everything? Bang! Bang! Gun is a tool, Marion. No better, no worse than any other tool. An axe, a shovel, or anything. A gun is as good or as bad as the man using it. Remember that. We'd all be much better off if there wasn't a single gun left in this valley. Including yours. I just want to say one thing about Jean Arthur, because we already talked about her a little bit. This is kind of Jean Arthur in real life, too. She really is this uh, opinionated woman. You know, she's a committed animal lover. And, you know, that she was very adamant that she could inspect the conditions of the rooster 
recoup in the livestock on set because she, uh, if if it wasn't up to her standards of how they were being treated, she would like threaten to leave the picture. So she was like also an animal rights activist. And I love that this character has an element of that, like protecting the voiceless or, you know, uh, speaking out there. Like, I just love that she was doing that on set as well as being, you know, she has, she's a matriarch and she's speaking truth, but she's also, she is a, she's a great, you know, protector of the innocent. What do you think about the films kind of floating this idea of an unspoken romance between her and Shane? I was obsessed with this. I, you know, you know, it's not subtle. It's definitely there. It lingers there. I was wondering if it's this idea that when you are viewed as a hero or a tough guy, it's not just the kids looking up to you, but it's also, you know, this woman looking at him longingly, like, does she love him because he's like a tough guy? You know, whereas her husband is doing a great job protecting, but like even the weight of that, like he's got to keep everybody either at bay or, you know, there's so much to live up to that he can't possibly be this man that everybody wants him to be. Oh, that's interesting from seeing it from him trying to live up to to her too. Yeah, because I mean, I was struck by how much the movie still establishes that she loves her husband. You know, when her husband gives that toast about how marrying her is the best thing ever, like he means that. And I appreciate that that this isn't a movie that tried to, you know, stack the deck in any way by making her husband suck or be mean or dismissive to her. Like he does love her. And I think by making it complicated just a little bit like that is beautiful. I, I mean, I didn't think I was ever rooting for her to leave her husband for Shane. Well, it's it's if impossible. You think, of it, you think of it like this, right? It would be very hard if you're living a simple life, right? They're out in the middle of the plains. They're doing their work. They have a small town. And essentially, a movie star moves in, you know, you know, and, and they just are different. They're, it, it, it's this, this idea that, you know, oh, my gosh, the way that they talk, what they've seen, you can't help but be attracted to this person. But you don't know this person. You just are kind of attracted to the newness of it. I think that, you know, that a lot of the times is the problem with dating is like, I think you kind of look, oh, well, that's exciting because it's different. Not always because you are like fully attracted to them either. You know, I think you just want to look at it in a different way. I don't know. I I'd love that they kind of let that linger. And I love that that's, you know, to me, a reason why he can't stay either. Because he doesn't even want, like, he knows there's no place for him. There's no home for him. His only home is like Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven, alone in a fucking cabin in the middle of nowhere because he can't be around anybody because they'll want something from him. Violence, role model, sex. Yeah. He's a modern day Vin Diesel. (laughs) Yeah. And they don't even try to make it an easy solution by killing the husband or something. So he can just slot into that place. Yeah. No, I appreciate that that they wall off all the entrances and they don't give us anything phony, even though the movie itself is in this kind of mythic archetypal grandeur of who he is. But do you think that, like, I feel like what I love about this movie is they create that. He doesn't create that, right? And then, and you watch this person live, you know, they're they're creating all this hubbub about him. But I, I, I think there's something really cool about that. Like, I don't think you ever go like, Shane's a fucking badass. Like, you know, it's like, I mean, he, like, he doesn't do anything with any pomp and circumstance, I guess. No, that's um, true. And I love how you were describing the fights in the bar because they go on forever. 
and they are not clean. You know, even though there's ridiculous stuff and they're like throwing one man at three men and knocking them Mm -hmm. all over, you do still see Shane take a lot of hits. He takes a lot of hits. Um, The father takes a lot of hits and none of this looks fun or easy. At no point are you like, look at him. He can do anything. Like it, it is not an easy fight. When he breaks the baseball bat or whatever, that piece of wood over one of those guys' heads, you're like, oh, you know, and we're so used to seeing like chairs being broken, people flipping over tables. But those are the moments that I think I love that bar fight. It, 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 I love a sloppy fight. Like to me, it, it's like there's a, a movie called Atomic Blonde with uh, Charlize Theron, and there's a, a, a fight on the stairway. It, it's an amazing sequence. Uh, I think it's like a cheated one shot. Um, but it's so fucking sloppy. And I think John Wick does this as well, where they're out of breath. You know, it's like, oh, fuck. Like, I got to keep on fighting. Like, I don't have it left. I don't have any energy to do this anymore. And I, that to me is so refreshing to see because it's like, it does account. It's like a video game. It does account for, hey, you're losing your energy. You're, you're powering down at a certain point. And, and it becomes, you know, uh, it's not everything has to be, you know, Bruce Lee, you know, I think you can kind of, I don't know, embrace that. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, there's a mix between what we're seeing on screen and the score that we're hearing, because the score that we're hearing is really cheerful, even though what we're seeing is more complicated. increasingly interested in this kind of music cue because this reminds me of the same sort of music that we heard um in the parachute jump of bridge over the river Kwai. it's the i i I don't know i think of this music as the police academy music i want to know the history of the jaunty police academy music oh amy this is like the this is like the topic of your next zoom podcast i love it (laughs) you know i just want to talk again about this movie and and the expectation of what this movie was and how it was received because we already talked about the idea that the story is very simple. It's been copied. Uh, we see its tentacles in, in all of Westerns. I think this one does it better than, than most, if not all. But, you know, the studio, when they made this movie, they thought this was going to be a B picture. And that's why it was a low-budget 20-day shoot. And it took George Stevens two years to edit this movie. Um, So he's very exacting. And he, you know, the money is spiraling out of control. And Paramount's like, oh, this is not going to work. This is not going to work. And they approached Howard Hughes. They said, hey, would you, I don't know, maybe buy this movie from us? Because we're losing so much money on it. Howard Hughes is like, I'm not buying a Western, a dumb Western from you. But then he watched the movie. And he immediately called back. He's like, I'm going to give you a million dollars right now. I will buy this film from you right now. And then all of a sudden, Paramount's like, oh, wait, hold on. This might be, this might be something that is actually good. And they made it its flagship film of the year. Um, and it recouped all of its money. And again, it just goes back. I think as we've talked about this, you know, a, a lot in the last couple of episodes, like, Audiences want to see something a little bit more complex, and I feel like it's re- it's been rewarded uh, when these themes are kind of complex, and and how you can kind of mix 
something that is incredibly entertaining with something that actually has a message where you go out and you, and you realize that it's like, this is not hitting you over the head with it. It's actually creating a movie that you walk out and you go, that was a great cowboy movie. And then you're like, wait, but hold on. What is it? You know, it, it, it kind of plants these seeds. Uh, I just, I was kind of amazed at that. I didn't realize that this was going to be kind of just kind of shot out on the side. You know, this is a movie that kind of was like the little engine that could force yeah. to could. Yeah. Although I have to say, I mean, thinking about this movie technically, Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel to me like it has the the kind of visual grandeur of, of no. even other Stevens's other movies. This feels very TV to me. I kept thinking when I was watching it, like it it doesn't look right to my eyes. It like looks, it looks like there's a lot of day for night, like kind of halos oh, around people's heads. So, so much day for night. I hated that. It doesn't look like anything like a John Ford movie. And I feel like you mm-hmm. know when you talk about the Searchers, you're like, oh, I wish I had like the Searcher cinematography with this plot you know it's like that like it's that's you know i feel like but this movie kind of transcends that although it was the first pre-anamorphic widescreen color western um, that's true although i hear they didn't necessarily want it to be that way it was you know how, you remember how like 10 years ago all these movies were shot in 2d and then they last minute got turned into 3d yeah i think that's kind of what they did here with this movie being like it's widescreen they just blew it up and made uh, it big okay. and it and it fucked up the colors then the cinematographer was really embarrassed by it. And then he won the Oscar and he was like, okay. And to me, oh, wow. honestly, I'm kind of oh, like strange about him winning the Oscar. Cause there's just, there's weird stuff in here. Like when they go to, um, when they go to the, the store for the first time and there's a whole scene with like the man who owns the store and there's a pull curtain from the light shade, like right in the middle of his face. And I was like, what's happening? Like, it was just, do you remember that? Like that white yarn I do. in his face yeah, for I, no like, reason? I was like, what's hap- what is that? that? That's not visual. Is it just weird? No, it, like you're right. Like I think it felt like an early, ep- or not an early, a color episode of Bonanza or something like that. It, it, it just had like a, you know, for a movie that took 119 takes to do a scene or, you know, it took 75 versus the original 20. It's like, I wonder what that was spent on because it wasn't creating beautiful vistas. I mean, there's a couple moments where you see like this great backdrop in the the little town that they built, but it's not, um, I don't know. In a, in a weird way, I wonder if the story sticks out more because it's not photographed in a stunning way. It's not photographed like a heroically, you know, it kind of is a little bit more simple. I don't know. I, I, I definitely a couple of times it shook my head like, Oh, this is like, it's rough to look at. Yeah, right? I mean, I was watching, you know, the original cabin is still there. It's been declared a ruin. And so there's a couple, if you go on YouTube, there's people who like going out to visit the cabin with their cell phones. And when mm-hmm. they shoot the cabin with their cell phones, it looks just as good, if not better, you know, because the mountains are there and the mountains are the yeah. special effect in the field. I mean, I don't, it doesn't seem like they added much to make this movie look good. And then there were, there were a bunch of technical things I kept being just like laughing at, like, the way the rain hits the window was just insane. Oh, you know, that whole looks- shot of Shane and the rain, the, the rain's going like diagonally for some reason, but he's not wet. And you're like, what's it, happening? Like, it, looks like, it looks like you're watching like a bad uh, ride, like uh, a Disney ride. Like, you know, you're going through like, ooh, it's windy. You know, like it, it just, that scene, like, yeah, there's definitely a lot of moments like that. And, you know, and I kind of chalk it up to, oh, they didn't have, the style or technique, but that's so not true. I mean, we just watched, you know, we've watched black and white films that are so much more viscerally exciting. We, I mean, the film that we just watched last week, all these movies from the same time period are, are, are able to pop more than this. It, it, it does feel like, um, 
maybe they didn't get the right cinematographer for the job, but yet that cinematographer wins the Academy Award. And it's sort of because I think, you know, something popular, everyone just assumes like, well, that's the reason it, it should get all the awards. Yeah, it but, gets all the awards, even though I mean, I kept even and I couldn't find an answer to this. But there there seem to be so many scenes where all of the dialogue was just put on after the fact, like people are saying dramatic things in the plot like, oh, this is happening. But the camera's so far away, you can't even see who's talking. It doesn't look like anybody's lips are moving. It feels like they just added a lot of dialogue afterwards to be like, I don't know. Here we go. And so I was just I, the whole time I was really confused that this is the George Stevens movie on the list. As much as I like its message, given that he made giant, given that he made a place mm. in the sun. Yeah, but I think what makes this movie stand out is not the technical aspects of it. It's the effect this movie has. Now, where I where I have a problem with this movie is why do we have this and Unforgiven on the list? They both are ultimately saying the same thing. Um, you know. You have the element of a child in this one, which I think is interesting. But I look at it and I go, if I was to pick one where Shane gets a little bit of a, an advantage is they did this in 1954, right? So there is just like, wow, how ahead of your time were you? But I also feel like, you know, Unforgiven stylistically is better, ultimately is carrying the same kind of weight. Um you know, so I like there is like there is a a tough way to I don't know, it's hard to balance like what I would put on the list. I don't think we need two of the same exact stories in the same exact genre. No, you I know, mean I might it, honestly get rid of both of them. But it really but, yeah. For stagecoach. Yeah, or maybe not another Western at all. I mm-hmm. I'm I'm starting to get this urge to want one of the great like union union rabble rousing movies, you know, like a Norma mm-hmm. Ray on here or something. I'm starting to be like, I want to tell that story instead of another Western. I was also thinking about like a nine to five or something too. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I mean. I, mean, this, I yeah. like the nine to five element in this one when Jack Palance, you know, um, is telling his boss like, you know, his boss is like, I'll kill him if I have to. And Jack Palance is like, you mean I'll kill him if you have to. You know, that kind yeah. of, there is that reminder of like working men versus their bosses. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. As much as I really like this movie, I I do wrestle with the with its placement because huh i'm i'm really you know i love alan ladd in it but you know as like as a cowboy it's kind of ridiculous compared to high noon there's something about high noon maybe it's because it's black and white but the outfits are a little less frilly like i mean shane's like costume is so um proppy or so like set like um out of the out of the Hollywood wardrobe shop, you know, but yet the movie works regardless of all those things. You know, I I feel like there are just some choices here that um that could really kind of tank this movie. But the fact that it's not that it doesn't tank and it actually is such an enjoyable watch, uh, it makes me conflicted. I wonder if this falls under your umbrella theory of movies that become more popular because they get a TV show. You know, like there was, here we'll hear a clip of it, the Shane TV show. Saturday night begins at 7.30 with Shane, a Western action drama based on the motion picture classic. It is produced by Herb Brodkin, whose reputation has been established with such distinguished series as The Defenders. It brings a new face to television audiences, David Carradine, fresh from his Broadway triumph in the highly acclaimed Royal Hunt of the Sun. 
if I was in school all day, I couldn't help you and Grandpa. Couldn't get in the way, either. Did you ever go to school? Yep. I bet they didn't teach you anything worth knowing. I bet they didn't teach you how to shoot as good as you do. Nope. I learned that somewhere else. I actually did see this show. I remember when uh, Rick Dalton was on as one of the bad guys. Really <laughs> great episode. No, you know what's so interesting is is that David Carradine is, does that, and then he does essentially the kung. He does kung fu, which is kind of a similar idea to Shane. It's true, and I don't know if people call that the producer of the Shane TV show was also the producer of the Defenders, but that was the TV show based on Twelve Angry Men, or kind of oh, riffing wow. off the Twelve Angry Men by it. And, and but by, by the, way, the way, Shane works as uh, a one-off show. I mean, it's, Shane is the Incredible Hulk. I mean, Shane is, and that's the other thing. It's like, we talk about this all the time. Like, is it because it's first, does it belong on the list? But it, like so many shows, like Highway to Heaven is this. Like, you know, it's this idea of like one person comes to town, makes a difference, goes on their merry way. Yeah. And I think Shane coming out in 1953 really is this great example of how TV and film are interacting at that point, mm. you know? Because, I mean, yes, I feel like this was shot TV-ish in a way, being like, that's what y'all like, now it's fine. We almost don't have to shoot it that good. I don't know, that's right. a theory. But that, you know, this movie gets like a full court TV promotional push. I mean, the little kid um, who wins an Oscar for this and becomes the youngest person nominated for an Academy Award, you know, his name is Brandon De- DeWild. Um he gets to be on the show, What's My Line? Do you know that show? Where like yes, people come on and course, then like everybody yes. be blindfolded and they wouldn't know who was talking. He puts on a fake voice to disguise them. This is really cute. Begin it with uh, Dorothy Kilgallen. Are you in some form of the entertainment world? I beg your pardon? Uh, is our guest in some branch of the entertainment world? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <Last> pages. <laughs> Have you been running? No, I don't mean that as a question. <laughs> you sounded rather breathless. Uh, do you do something other than act? I mean, in addition to acting. No. One down and nine to go, Mr. Allen. Smell charme. <laughs> uh, then you are an actress. Then you are an actress? No. Two down and eight to go, Miss Francis. I mean, you, you, we, I mean, you know how, like, Paul, every year when a kid gets nominated for an Academy Award, that kid is then trotted out at all the parties and becomes the toast of the town for, oh, like, a year? Yeah. I mean, he absolutely got that. He even got his own TV show right at the same time called Jamie. It's time for Jamie, starring Brandon DeWilda, with Ernest Truex, Polly Rolls, and Kathy Nolan. Brought to you by Sunsweet Prune Juice, the fruit juice that gives you something extra. The shits. <laughs> wow. I mean, he's, uh, a really, he's a really interesting person. He um, wound up dying when he was 30 in a, um, in a car accident. But before that, he got really into music. And he was recording music with Graham Parsons uh, around the time when he wow. died. Some of that is still on YouTube if people want to give it a listen. Well, it's kind of funny because I think he gave Alan Ladd a really hard time on set. I mean, infamously, uh, during the final sequence when... And Lad's wounded and he's leaving town and he's telling him, like, you know, why he can't stay. Apparently, when he was off camera, Brandon was just sticking his tongue out at him the entire time. And Lad was like, get his dad over here. He's like, make that kid stop or I'll beat him over the head with a brick. <laughs> I mean, let's listen to that speech, actually, because it becomes really important. 
Man has to be what he is, Joey. Can't break the mold. I tried it and it didn't work for me. We want you, Shane. Joey, there's no living with with a killing. There's no going back from him. Right and wrong, it's a brand. A brand sticks. There's no going back. Now you run on home to your mother and tell her. Tell her everything's all right. And there aren't any more guns in the valley. I'm assuming by now people have put it together that Shane is the movie that uh, shows up a lot in Logan, in the Wolverine movie from a couple years ago. That that Shane is the movie that um, the little girl happens to be watching, that Laura happens to be watching, and it's the movie that she winds up quoting at the very end when um, Wolverine dies. What he is, Joey. Can't break them all. There's no living with the killing. There's no going back. Right or wrong, it's a brand. A brand that sticks. Now you run on home to your mother. You tell her everything's all right. There are no more guns in the valley. Well, here's my question for you. I know you don't want to put a Marvel movie on this list, but would you replace Shane with that? Can I get rid of Unforgiven too? Sure. You can do whatever you want. Hmm. I'm open then. I'm open. All right. All right. Would I never have to put on another superhero movie? Could we just put on Logan and call it a day? Huh. Maybe, maybe, maybe. You wouldn't want to put a Dark Knight on there. You wouldn't want to put a, a Nolan on there. That's a bad. I mean, if we could only put one, I wonder if people would rather put on Logan or Dark Knight. I think Dark Knight is the one that would probably win out if you were to ask people. I think that that is probably more resonant in our culture as being, I mean, they're both really good, but I think that they're both also examples of movies that transcend what a a superhero movie is. It's not the traditional fare. You know, I think that that's why they're kind of viewed this way, the same way that this is not a traditional cowboy movie in a, in a world when there are, you know, hundreds of cowboy movies, this sticks out. I think that the cowboy movies and the superhero movies share a similarity. And I think you can tell these intense stories you have these other movies that are released and they're just a fun superhero romp and there's others that you can actually do something that has a little bit more weight to and tell a and tell a better story i don't know there's a world for that i mean that's fair though you have convinced me that that yeah no shane no unforgiven and no logan on the afi top 100 wow you want (laughs) logan just got kicked out logan got kicked out wow 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 by Um, the way did you know that jack palance um, you know, when he makes this movie, he's fairly new to making movies and he has just mm-hmm. shown up and done this dynamic one, two punch. He gets a supporting actor nomination for this one. And he had just gotten a supporting actor nomination the year before. And he had really only started making movies just a few years before that. He was Marlon Brando's understudy on the stage production of a streetcar named desire. Oh, wow. Can you imagine Jack would... Palance? No, I mean, I mean, I guess so looking at, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, city slickers, Jack Palance. And I have to look at him there. Like he was an attractive man. Like, you know, he had that beautiful. He is a badass, but you know what? You did talk about this earlier and I just want to call it to attention one more time. He did not know how to ride a horse. He did not know how to uh, unmount or gracefully mount a horse. So (laughs) when you first see him dismount in the movie and then remount it, what they did was 
they ran the film in reverse. They had him getting off the horse and they ran in reverse. So it looks smooth, um, which I just think is like so funny because he is, you hear him in that clip. He's still giving everybody shit, but this is the guy who <laughs> couldn't get on and off his horse. And when you watch this like classic scene of this intimidating guy to know it's just running backwards to get <laughs> uh, on and off. I thought that was so fun. Movies are not real. I'm doing my air clap. Can I seize this moment to play Jack Palance at the Oscars? One of the best Oscar moments of all time when he does the one-armed push-up? Oh, of course. You know, there are times when uh, when you reach a certain age plateau where the uh, the producers say, they talk about you and they say, well, what do you think? Can we risk it? Can we do it? Can we use him? The other guy says, I don't know. Let's look at some younger ones. We can make them look older. But this one, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult. They forget. They forget to ask that you go out there and you do all these things. Like, for instance, you know, you go out there and you do these... That's, that's nothing really. As far as the two-handed push-ups are concerned, you can do that all night. And it doesn't make any difference whether she's there or not. Because. <laughs> and besides, it's a hell of a lot less expensive. Wow. <laughs> you know, a long time ago, 1949, uh, first picture, 1949, first film, I've been shooting about two weeks, and uh, the producer came to me and he said, Jack, my name at that time was Vladimir, but he called me Jack. Uh, He says, Jack, you're going to win the Academy Award. Can you believe it? Forty-two years later, he was right. (laughs) How this son of a bitch knew. Thank you. Well, you know, look, Jack Pounce never is really escaping uh, this cowboy image. And he's done a, a, a lot of great parts. I wanted to play this clip um, from when he was on Letterman in 1992 uh, and just kind of his energy about Shane in 1992. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about your career. You know that Shane, I rented that uh, a couple of months ago and watched it. Man, what a great movie that is. Yeah. It's still, that was made in what, 52, 53, right in there? 52. Yeah, it's still uh, just as crisp and as exciting and, and full of uh, fun and drama as it, as it was when it was first released. Was, was, is that one of your favorites? It's got to be one of your favorites, huh? Are you asking me or are you leading me into an answer? <laughs> what? what... <laughs> well, if I have to think of a film like that, but you know, it's 40 years ago. Who the hell's going to think of a film 40 years ago? What I'm... What I'm... What I'm thinking about is a film. What I'm thinking about is the film that's coming four weeks from now, four days from now, something like that. Did I love, love, like the film? I loved it. I loved it. Well, I answered that question, didn't I? I just thought that was great that he still just like doesn't give a shit. I love it. No. He's so handsome and so intimidating. But um, yeah, if we're going to be talking about like the decades long legacy of Shane, I mean, Shane has been used politically in ways that I find really interesting. I mean, in 1959, when Khrushchev came to America um, and stayed at Camp David, Shane was the movie that Eisenhower requested to play for Khrushchev while they were having their slumber party. 
What? It also, yeah. And then, like, several decades later, in 1981, you know, China had had a wall up about showing American films in China. Um, they finally agreed to screen five American movies in China. They sifted through a lot. They rejected several movies that we've actually had on this list. They rejected The Grapes of Wrath. They rejected On the Waterfront. But they allowed five movies to be shown, and Shane was one of them. And the other ones, uh, I don't know if you can guess, we've got Singing in the Rain and Snow White. And then they also picked Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and The Black Stallion. Oh, wow. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. By the way, you know, I like to play um, music inspired by songs to torture you, but mm-hmm. I kind of like this one. This song came out right around the same time as Shane was playing in China, it's by uh, Kim Wilde. People might know her as um, she did Kids in America. And she have has a whole song called Shame. bad not bad i'll take it good we found one good song that you like <laughs> um you know we've talked a lot about a lot of the actors in this film I just want to take a moment to talk about alan ladd this movie was nominated for a lot of awards alan ladd not nominated for best actor which is so interesting because he is the crux of the film but i think we also talk about him being like a puppet of this film because we put a lot onto him i don't know how much he's bringing to it but i, I but I do think his performance is really uh, is really quite good and understated. And, and it falls out of the typical tropes of these types of films. And I wanted to play a clip of Alan Ladd talking about, you know, this character and how George Stevens kind of influenced him a little bit. When you get into the strata of a George Stevens, George is going to make his movie. And he did some stuff with Alan that let Alan achieve more as an actor and get more out of himself than uh, he had ever before that time. Most of the time, Alan could not show love, but in this movie, he loved that boy as a love for his own children. Shane didn't need to say much. You knew about the relationship with Gene Arthur, though it never happened. I thought that was, I just thought that was really interesting because you, you realize after kind of hearing that, like, oh, he's doing a lot. Like, he's actually doing a lot to carry a film and be so 
not monosyllabic, but just really carrying himself with a grace and dignity. You get everything by the way he carries himself. And, uh, and you know, I think that urge or that actor, that role, it kind of suits each other. Like somebody like Shane wouldn't speak that much, you know, and to have that one little moment to see the love. And I feel like you get that a little bit in Unforgiven where Clint Eastwood is, you, you see his heart open to that one, you know, sex worker in the town where you, you see something, a connection where he talks about his love, but you don't actually see it in the moment. Here you get to see that one little glimmer and, and like this, just the way he carries himself, this pride. I, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it, I think it hurt him a lot that he didn't get an Oscar nomination for this. I mean, Alan Ladd, he had a pretty rough road. I mean, he's a kid who grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas. When he's five years old, he accidentally burns down his parents' house. And oh, his wow. parents did not have money. And when, you know, a few years after that, they wound up having to move to California during the Dust Bowl. And he lived in a migrant camp here in Pasadena. And it's, you know, growing up poor here, doing radio was how he wound up getting discovered and making it into the movies. Where he started to get famous, actually, was he did seven films with our girl, Veronica Lake. But he got topcast, like, all the way back then as, like, this cold-hearted killer. And he was really insecure about that, about being typecast. He was really insecure about the fact that he was only five foot five. He always felt like he was too short and that nobody took him seriously as a tough guy. So he just, like, felt really off balance. And, I mean, he had a lot of personal tragedy, honestly, too. Like, there's a story that once um, – his mom asked him for money and she drank a lot and he thought she was just asking him for money to buy booze. Uh, but she wound up going to the store and she bought ant poison with arsenic and she committed suicide and he found her in the back of his car. Um, Oof. Yeah, that happened. Um, and then a, like a couple years after he makes Shane, um, he's found in his own house with a bullet wound in his chest. And um, he claims it was an accident, but it seems like it was probably suicide. It maybe because two years later, he wound up dying from an accidental overdose of alcohol and sleeping pills. So he for that, he was able to project calm strength in this movie actually is a lot of acting because I don't think that's how he felt ever. I mean, I think, Amy, we've really kind of talked about does this movie belong on the list? And I think if you're going to twist my arm, because I know where you already feel about it. I, you know, I, I go, because I, I came in going, absolutely, this belongs on the list. This is the quintessential cowboy film. I think there are better versions of this out there. So I'm going to say, take it off the list, but keep it high in your heart, because I do think this movie is actually a really wonderful, beautiful film. And I think we've told the story and continue to tell the story. You know, if, if it's Logan, um, if it's Unforgiven, you know, this story still stands. And, you know, and I think visually is what's kind of, edging me to that direction. I think we've done it a little bit better uh, visually. Um, yeah. I've, even though there's a lot here to love. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I am all on board always for films that question who we hold up as heroes and why. And I think this film does that so beautifully. But I'm ready to see a hero who never has to hold a gun in the first place, even if the movie makes fun of him holding guns. I'm ready to get out of the Wild West for movies like this. You know, yeah. there's a lot of I mean, heroes in this country who aren't represented in films like this. There's a lot of hero that heroism takes a lot of different forms. And now I guess the question is, how was this movie received? We know that it became a flagship of the studio, but uh, were people into it? Yeah, everybody loved it. I couldn't actually find a negative review of this. Um, what I did find instead that I wanted to read is from a positive review written much later uh, when this movie came out by Roger Ebert. Um, because what he what he says here is he just poses a lot of questions to the audience. He says he's still wrestling with what Shane is and what it means. And I thought that was so interesting. So I'm going to read his questions. Yeah. 
Here is a man tough enough to handle any threat, and he's handsome enough to win the heart of almost any woman. Why does he present himself as a weakling? Why is he without a woman? You know, there must be a deep current of fear enlivened by masochism. Is he afraid of women? Maybe. Does he deliberately lead men to think they can manhandle him and then kill them? Manifestly. Does he do this out of bravery and courage? Does because he believes in the right in doing the right thing? That is the conventional answer, but does he also do it because it expresses some deep need or yearning? A real possibility. You know, Shane never says and maybe never knows. Shane wears a white hat and Palance wears a black hat, but the buried psychology of this movie is a mottled, uneasy, fascinating gray. And I hadn't thought of that angle till, till Eber brought it up, that if Shane can beat everybody, is he kind of teasing everyone into a confrontation eventually? Hmm. Like, like, what does he, does, is he getting something out of this underneath the surface? Oh, I think that's a cynical way of looking at it, but it's interesting to to at least think about, like, he's like, oh, I know I can beat you. Like, it's... I think that that kind of undercuts the whole idea of the movie, but uh, it's worth a debate, uh, which <laughs> my, my next question was going to be, is Shane a replicant? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, but no, my real question is this. Is there Simpsons? Yes. I'm going to make the argument that this is a Shane reference in this Simpsons clip here. Um, this is from an episode called The Cartridge Family. And what happens in this episode is Homer Simpson goes to a gun shop. It's called Bloodbath and Beyond. He buys a gun, and this scene is going to open up with him surprising Marge with his gun. There's a line in here that I think is echoing Shane when he describes that a gun is a tool. Close your eyes, Marge. I've got a surprise for you. Okay, open your eyes. Hey, it's a handgun. Isn't it great? This is the trigger, and this is the thing you point at whenever you want to die. Homer! I don't want guns in my house. Don't you remember when Maggie shot Mr. Burns? I thought Smithers did it. That would have made a lot more sense. Hey, Dad, can I borrow the gun tomorrow? I want to scare that old security guard at the bank. Only if you clean your room. No! No one's using this gun. The TV said you're 58% more likely to shoot a family member than an intruder. TV said that? But I have to have a gun. It's in the Constitution. Dad, the Second Amendment is just a remnant from revolutionary days. It has no meaning today. You couldn't be more wrong, Lisa. If I didn't have this gun, the King of England could just walk in here anytime he wants and start shoving you around. You want that? Huh? Do you? No. All right, then. I'm sorry, Homer. No weapons. A gun is not a weapon, Marge. It's a tool. Like a butcher knife or a harpoon or uh, uh, an alligator. You just need more education on the subject. Tell you what, you come with me to an NRA meeting, and if you still don't think guns are great, we'll argue some more. That is amazing. Holy shit. Uh, I don't even care if it's a, uh, a Shane reference. I just wanted to watch that clip. Yeah, that whole episode, by the way, was really, really uh, controversial. You know, The Simpsons tried to both sides it a little bit. Like some of the writers in the room uh, were very pro-gun. Some of the writers, including uh, Matt Groening, are very anti-gun. So they tried to kind of show both sides, which did not work. Uh, The NRA complained about this episode and said it didn't represent them correctly. Um, And also a writer in The New Statesman pinpointed this moment as the moment that Marge should have left Homer, saying that, quote, Homer has proven himself to be a violent, unstable, controlling, reckless husband. Wow. I mean, that prime for a a remake of Streetcar, right? With the two of them. Let's do it. Uh, (laughs) Amy, it's been fascinating talking about Shane. 
I feel like we've said everything that needs to be said. I mean, what do you think? We're we're obviously podcasters of few words. What a fun episode. I uh, loved talking about this movie. Um, but Amy, we are coming to the close of a very important part of the AFI list. Next week, we're talking about Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, which is the last silent film on this list. It is. It is. Um, it's our 95th film on the list is next week. Holy uh, Charlie cow. Chaplin's Modern Times. That is insane to me. We've done 95% of this list. Oh, my God. We are now out of silent films after next week. And so my question at home for everybody listening is, what silent films is this list missing? You know, what is not here that needs to be heard? Now is the time to speak up on behalf of the silence that cannot speak for themselves, that cannot have cute little quotes played on during the episode. And tell us which silent film you think should also be here, should be considered for for inclusion on this list. Maybe you think a Charlie Chaplin film, he's got three of them, should be elbowed aside for your favorite. So give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824 to speak up for your silent film. And like we said, next week's episode is Modern Times, and you can find it for free on HBO Max. HBO Max kind of sucked up Filmstruck, so there's a lot of great films on HBO Max right now. Uh, but that's how I w- uh, am going to watch it. So uh, it's right there for free. We will see you next week as we talk about Modern Times. See you later, Amy. Bye. Oh, it's also on Criterion. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.